I, I truly believe real estate's the best wealth generation vehicle out there. And so that's really what kind of guided me into real estate and then jumped forward a little bit. And the experiences I had in real estate while doing that, you know, I went to go flip more homes and do more things and understanding and getting and hitting some of these problems within real estate. I started to see that it wasn't digitized. There was no online options. It was all relationship-based. The barrier to entry was really high. And so through a long series of events and many other companies, that's actually where Brick ideated from. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome back, Contrarian Cashflow. Today, I've got Chris Worthlin with me. Chris, what's going on, my man? How's it going, John? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. No, super excited for this conversation. So for those folks that don't know, so Chris is a serial entrepreneur, real estate investor, and most importantly, a loving husband. So Chris, uh, what are you and the crew over at Brick working on right now? So what we're working on right now at Brick is we believe that right now, when you're going to sell any sort of real property, you don't have a lot of options. Traditionally, you're just selling through a realtor, which has a lot of pros to it. You know, we're, we're, we work with a lot of realtors. There is definitely a place in the real estate market for realtors. But a lot of times when you need to sell a property very quickly, when you have something that may not be uh, mainstream, your options get limited. So what Brick is working on right now is expanding homeowners and landowners opportunities to sell their property and to sell it quickly for a great price. We do a lot of creative financing. We do a lot of land. We do a lot of multifamily will buy anything. And so we're, we're trying to take the iBuying space and make it more diverse instead of just, you know, you look at open pad or open door offer pad, Keller Williams cash offer, Zillow offers, those types of, I mean, you gotta be a, you know, your home has to be built between 1960 and 2020. You know, it has to be updated and renovated and it has to be really nice. And the reality for most homeowners is that they don't, you know, you live in your house. It's not always updated you know, different financial struggles can make it hard to keep your, your house updated. And so we feel that need in the market of where when your house is less than optimal and you need to sell it and you don't want to go through the normal traditional hassle of, you know, offers and realtors and listing on the market, people walking through your home, then brick is your alternative. No, that's outstanding. And I mean, and to your point, obviously there has to be more op opportunities and options for folks out there, right? When you talk about, you know, maybe unusual circumstances, either it got it deeded over to them or they inherited it or, or whatever the case is. So would you kind of equate it to kind of a wholesaling firm or how do you guys differentiate yourselves yeah, from the so, market? Yeah. So we don't wholesale. We're not a wholesaler. We're, we're an iBuyer. The main difference between us and a wholesaler is a wholesaler does, generally doesn't buy the home. So they will put your property under contract and then they will go. And in, in every contract, there's going to be a clause in there that gives them the ability to assign the rights of that contract to another person. And so what they do a lot is they'll tell you an offer, tell you all of these things, and then they'll go and they'll market their contract to seven or 8,000 different flippers and investors. And then they'll come back and if they can make it happen, they can make it happen. If they can't, then they renegotiate with you and negotiate you down. So the difference between us is that we actually buy the vast majority 
of the properties that we offer on. We have an assignment clause in our contracts, just so everybody's aware, but that is so that we can usually get you the highest possible price. So if you want something, for example, let's say at market value, we can go at market value. Our company cannot pay for it at market value though. But if you're willing to sell or finance it, let's say you have a a single family residence, but it's in a great area and you can Airbnb it out. So we don't hold any sort of properties, but we work with firms that do hold Airbnbs or single family rentals. And so if it fits their criteria, we can actually get the property under contract and assign it over to them and and usually get the homeowner more. But we buy, I would say we buy about 80 to 85% of our the properties we offer on. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, just such a different alternative, right? You know, and I think that's awesome seeing an opportunity in the market where, you know, there's an underserviced area of homeowners and and uh, property owners that that are looking to move things. So no, that, that's really cool, man. Well, I'm excited to see where, where that ends up leading you guys to. So well, let's rewind a little bit and let's learn a little bit more about your background. So I know that Brick isn't your first uh, exposure to entrepreneurship. So how did you start going down this path and and why did you realize that entrepreneurship was a path you even wanted to take in the first place? So that's a great question. I started my first company when I was 17 years old. So what had happened leading up to that was I was doing, let's say the traditional route, studying really hard in school, getting really good grades. I was a multi-sport athlete. You know, I wrestled track, cross country, um, lacrosse, just doing everything that I could. And my plan at the time when I was 16, 17 was I'm going to get really good at wrestling. I'm going to go in, compete, get a state title, and then use that to help me get into an Ivy League school, whether it was Harvard or Stanford or wherever. And so I was studying really hard for to get the grades, to have the whole thing, volunteering like crazy, to just be the whole package so I could go to one of these Ivy League schools. And growing up, entrepreneurship was not something that was in my family at all. My dad ran a $2.5 billion company. And so everything was, hey, you know, go to school, you're going to go cut your teeth for four years, then you're going to go back and you're going to get your MBA or your JD. And then you're going to come back in when you're 30 and you've done 10 years experience at the firms or whatever. They'd always call it the firm. You you do 10 years at the firm. Then, you know, by the time you're 35, you're going to be an executive and you're going to be making $450,000 a year. Uh, You're still going to be working really hard. But then when you're 40, 45, then you'll get the stock options and you'll be making an insane amount of money is, is, is the path that was always shown to me. And then when I was 17, I actually had a traumatic brain injury from wrestling. I got kicked in the back of the head. And so what that caused is it totally flipped my whole world upside down. I went from you know being 4.0, kind of headed on this track to like going to resource classes in school because I couldn't you know remember anything and I had a really hard time, you know, with basic things, reading. I remember I couldn't express my emotions for a long time. And so I couldn't play any sports. I mean, even the doctor said I couldn't run because they were worried about the jarring impact of my feet hitting the pavement, traveling through my body and potentially affecting my brain. And this was before concussions or, you know, things were as well known, you know, you'd get a concussion in wrestling. I mean, you'd go out cold and they'd be throwing you back up on the mat, you know, and saying, Hey, let's go shake it off. We can, you know, you have three minutes left in this round, keep going. And, and that was the culture. And so it was really hard because I had this doctor telling me, he's like, you don't want to mess with this. You're going to have severe long-term damage if you're going to, if you continue. So I ended up losing my memory for about six months. I couldn't hold basic conversation. I was really socially awkward. The problem was is I couldn't get my thoughts out of my mouth. Like in my head, everything made sense, but there's a problem 
where it would all get scrambled coming out and I couldn't, couldn't express my emotions very well. And so, you know, I was pretty upset. I was not succeeding in school. You know, socially things were hard just because I couldn't interact. And, and that's when I was in a marketing class and I was just kind of frustrated, I guess, pissed off. You know, I loved sports. I loved wrestling and now I couldn't do anything. And, and I had a teacher and his name was Mr. McCauley. And he was a, he was a good teacher. He was one of the few, right, in high school where he actually ran businesses on the side and was making $300,000, $400,000 a year writing textbooks and running his little side hustles. And then he was also a great marketing teacher. And he saw, I think he just saw that I was struggling and, and he had known me before and kind of had seen me de- decline a little bit. And so he just said, I bet you can't start a business. And I remember he said it so like direct at me, you can't start a business. You're not capable. You can't do it. And immediately that just kind of like mentality kicked in of, well, no, I can. And I'm going to show you that I can. And so I had this idea to do, there's a, there's a company out of California that was doing this. I just copied what they were doing, but they were taking advertisements and they're printing them on the back of receipts. So they would go to local businesses, the businesses would pay them. And then they put the advertisement on the back of a, like a shopping receipt and they would provide the shopping paper for the grocery store for free. And so everybody's winning, you know, you're kind of a middleman type guy. And so I thought, you know, QR codes were coming out and they were the big rage. I mean, everybody thought QR codes were going to be the next, like the next internet, you know, kind of like NFTs are now, but everybody was so set on. So I was like, well, what if I could take a QR code and I can, you know, do all the stuff to where it scans and it takes it to the person's website. And so I went out and started door knocking on all these local businesses and just saying, Hey, like, you know, I've got this idea, you know, I'm going to advertise for you. I made some pamphlets, you know, some different things. And nobody was wanting to advertise with me at all. Everybody was telling me, no, I was going to pretty major change to like, I think I went to like Nordstrom and Target and just walked in the stores. Like, hey, can I talk to the director of the store? Had no idea that is like a corporate, you know, I needed to reach out to corporate. And then I started targeting smaller stores, mall, pop, pizza shops, started getting some traction there, but nobody would sign or, you know, agree to pay me any sort of money to do it. And so I was like, well, I'll just do it for free. And that's going to be the only way that I'm going to get this off the ground. And so I went into a dry cleaner and it was a dry cleaner tuxedo shop. And the owner, I I was talking to him and he looked really depressed, you know, like, so he opens up to me about his life story. His wife has cancer. The IRS is coming to take all, to audit him. Uh, It was like a Friday. They were coming on Monday. And he's like, I haven't paid taxes on any of my inventory. I've lied on all my tax returns. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to prison. You know, he was really distraught. And so I looked at him and I was like, well, what are you going to do with everything? And he said, I don't know. It's like a real problem. I said, I'll take all of it. I'll take all your tuxedos, take all your equipment. I'll take it all. And he, he said, well, if you can have it out of here by Monday, take it. So I called um, my dad and said, Hey, listen, I have this opportunity. Is it legal for me to do this? Can I just take his stuff? He's like, just write a bill of sale. You know, so we wrote a bill of sale. I had to give him some sort of consideration and I only had $5. So I gave him $5. And then he asked me if I would buy him lunch because he didn't have any money. So I bought him lunch. I bought him Subway. And after that, yeah, I I camped out at his store for three days. He had over 25,000 items. He was the biggest tuxedo shop in probably the Western region, I'd say. And so I got all that stuff, put it in my parents' basement at 17 and opened up a formal wear company. And ran it. 
Jeez. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah. I did, so I didn't know about the, the traumatic brain injury and everything. And I think yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting how many similarities those two stories have, right? You know, they kind of are intertwined. I mean, and obviously you're going down one direction and, you know, you kind of abruptly started going a different direction. And then, you know, but ultimately they led to, to kind of where you are today and, and kind of that mindset. So what was it like after, I mean, I know you said that it was really hard initially after having that injury, but, but what really kind of got you to start breaking out? And, you know, when, when that professor challenged you, you know, what was, what was your thought process and, and how did you really kind of pick yourself up and get going from there? So I think the biggest thing was that I was so angry at everything that had happened. I mean, I was major victim mentality of why did this happen to me? Like life is so hard for me. Why did all these things that I'd worked for for a really long time just go away overnight? Like, why did all this happen? And I kept on asking why and why and why. And it came down to it that I had this thought of, you know, and this was later. So when I actually started the business, I was thinking, the only thing I was thinking is I'm going to show this guy that I can do this because I was so down. And the other thing was I had so much time. I mean, I was used to playing two sports in one season. So I was going from, you know, my day would, I'd wake up at five in the morning I'd go work out and then I'd be to school 7, 7.30, getting ready for school and getting out the door, eating breakfast. And then I'd go to school all day and then I would have a practice from like 2 to 5, you know, let's say a track practice from 2 to 5. And then I'd have lacrosse from 5 to 8. And then I'd come home and do my homework between 8 and 10. And then I'd go back to bed and just do it all over again. And so one of the things that happened is all of that time went away. All of the the structure went away. I went from literally trying to maximize every minute of my life so that I could make my sports practices. And so I could, you know, study and get good grades to, oh, school's done at 2.30 and I have nothing to do until 10 o'clock. And I have no friends because all of my friends are playing sports. So what do I do? And video games weren't really a thing in my house. I had no other alternative. So was, I was bored. I was, I had nothing to do. And so when he had said that to me, it like kind of sparked this thing that just, you know, it, it, it was honestly done a lot out of like hatred of like him thing. Cause I'd failed so much at that point of not being able to do what I wanted to do. And for him to just say, well, I bet you can't do this either. It was like, okay, I'm going to figure that out and I'm going to go for it. And so that's really what my thought process was. And then after I got into it, I realized like, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually, I'm actually pretty good at this. Like I'm, I'm okay at talking to people. I'm okay at selling a vision. I'm okay at getting them on board. You know, so when we were doing the formal wear shop, I, I, I looked in and, you know, we had no money. We were bootstrapping this thing. I had no money. It was like, okay, what do we do to, to get this going? It's like, well, we have the high schools and prom is coming up. So can I go to each of these surrounding high schools and get their marketing departments? Can I use my connections and leverage this teacher to call another teacher to let us come in and then have all of the marketing departments market all our stuff for us? And so that's what we did. So we set up meetings with all these different teachers, these marketing department heads. And we went in, we pitched them on what we were going to do. And then they made it the semester project for their marketing students to market it for us and to actually get the sales for us direct into the high school. So it was great where all these proms were coming up and we were getting so many orders and, and all the rest of it. So we got you know really creative. And, and so after I had the first couple initial meetings, I mean, things started running fast. And so I didn't have any time to think. I mean, I was just so... I mean... Like, I think it's hard to conceptualize sometimes 15 or 20,000 items. I mean, we had 25,000 total, but like imagine 7,000 suit jackets 
like people can't imagine that, but it's like you take like a two or 300 square foot room and you fill it to the ceiling, 10 feet tall. And that's how much 7,000 is. And so my parents' whole basement is filled with this stuff. And we're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we organize this? Like we had a major tracking problem. Well, we can't do inventory management. Like we don't have an inventory management software. Like we can't afford $200 a month to buy one. So what do we do? So we were making Excel and we were making our own coat lines and naming them. And, you know, someone's like, well, we got to get them off the ground. And so, you know, I, I brought in two friends and then, you know, I think I had a total of like five or eight employees at, at the time. And so I brought in two friends doing one of them. He wanted to be an engineer, but of course he's in high school. So he's like, well, if we drill up into the ceiling, we can't afford racks, but we can go spend $15 at Home Depot and get piping and metal chains and drill up into the ceiling to do it so that we can hang the the jackets on them. And so we did that. And then what we didn't know though, is that the ceiling we drilled into was a drop ceiling because electrical ran through. (laughs) So we were drilling into two by fours, not the floor joists like we thought. And so what happened was uh, we had just, I I kid you not, we had just put the last tuxedo on the rack and I had one of our employees, he was like, Hey, I heard a creaking sound. Like, dude, shut up. Like go upstairs. Like you've been down here for too long. We're done. Like we just got this. And then I turn around to walk out and I just hear this like, and the whole ceiling came down, you know, like a good section of it just came down, exposed the whole thing. And at the time, my parents were really supportive, but they were kind of starting to get to that point where their whole basement was taken over by, I mean, think thousands of hangers. I mean, you just couldn't even walk in the basement. It it was a good sized basement. I mean, I think it was probably a three or 4,000 square foot basement. It was big. And so, you know, we were, we had no idea what to do. So I went upstairs and stole my dad's credit card and we took off to Home Depot and we called my other friend's dad and he snuck him in through the garage and we fixed it by the time morning came because <laughs> I just knew my dad would kill me. Like that would just be the last straw, I think, because, you know, we, we had pressed that we had pushed up to that envelope pretty, pretty good. So we fixed it overnight. We stayed up till four in the morning, fixing it and, you know, trying to muffle the sound of the drill so that my parents wouldn't wake up. Yeah. So that, that was, uh, that was that, that company and how I exited that company actually was I ran it for about seven months and the two people I was running with, one of them was, was taken off to college and the other was going to the air force. And I I was like, I'm not going to get stuck with this. You know, this is just too much. And so I started in Oregon and I called every tuxedo shop from Oregon down to California and over. And I hit Indiana before I found somebody who wanted to buy it. And so I sold it to them and, uh, and closed it all up. And, and that was the end of that business. That's so cool. I mean, and just, just the whole story. I mean, it's almost like it could be like a movie or something like that. You know, you've got, <laughs> you got all these suits and they're piling up in the basement here. And now you're talking to different high schools. I mean, just what an experience and what opportunity to kind of just learn. And like you said, I mean, bootstrapping, but I mean, at the very lowest level, right? I mean, you know, high school kids kind of putting this together, but the way that you were able to leverage your relationships. So I have to go back to the professor though. So what was the relationship after you, after he had challenged you, did, did you guys stay tight or did yeah. you kind of come back and say, Hey, look, man, like, look, I did, I was able to accomplish this. How'd you guys end things? Yeah. So I never talked to him again. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I sense, I sense reached out. I mean, I reached out maybe two years ago and just said, Hey, thank you for everything you did. But I didn't go to school. I pretty much dropped out of school at that point. I still graduated, but the business was all consuming. So the marketing teacher actually helped me talk to the administration and said, Hey, He's running a business and he really went to bat for me to say, Hey, you know, he's getting better experience than what we can teach him in school. And so they gave me credit for running my business. And so he went to bat. But then after that, I was like, I was so busy. I mean, 
we were working until four in the morning, every single morning. I mean, just the sheer volume of inventory that we had, people were sleeping at my house, you know, for days on end, their parents didn't know where they were. And people were skipping school to come and work during the day. And I never, I mean, I, I went to school probably twice a week during that whole time for maybe two or three hours, just showed up just to make sure that like, I wasn't going to get expelled or they weren't going to do anything, but I ended up, yeah, I ended up graduating just fine and, and had that experience as well. So. So how did you get the the wherewithal and kind of the the cojones to you know so first of all you're calling Target or you're you know you're you're walking yeah. into these you know door to door style right you know being like hey let me talk to your store director or whatever you were calling them and then now all of a sudden after that you know you're cold calling all these businesses trying to sell that so where did you get that motivation and ambition to just start kind of you know going for it I think one of the things was that I had nothing else going for me. And so I started realizing that this is like, I'm good at this. I can do this. You know, as I started seeing these small amounts of success, I started kind of looking at it and saying, well, I can't do anything else. I can't hold normal conversations. I can't play sports. You know, I didn't think I could go to college because of my head. I, I, I didn't feel like I could take the course load. And so it was the only thing I had going for me. And, so, and, and there's a point where, your back gets so pressed against the wall. What am I going to do with these tuxedos? I mean, what do you like? Do you take them to the dump? What do you do with them? And I wanted to make money off of them as well as I was, you know, preparing to enter college or kind of at that age, I wanted to make some money. And so that was kind of the natural thing. And I also wanted to have the experience of going all the way through the process from starting the company to also having uh, a quote unquote exit, right? Or understanding the liquidation of the company. And, and in that first company, it really taught me, you know, we didn't develop a brand because we were the brand. We went in and we sold the high school marketing teachers. Nobody cared because, I mean, we were undercutting everybody. I mean, I think we were renting these things for like 50 bucks, like the full set and like is 90 anywhere else. And so all these high school kids are like, yeah, like, we'll go with you all day. And so because of that, and because I wanted the experience to exit, I learned that what is valuable in a company as I was talking to these people, they're like, hey, send me your financials. Like, we didn't have a bank account. We were all cash. And the reason why was because you can't open a bank account at 17 because the IRS doesn't give you an EIN until you're 18. You know, and I don't know if that has changed, but at the time, that's what it was for us. So I couldn't even get an LLC. I couldn't get anything set up. And I asked my dad, I was like, well, you set it up for me. He's like, absolutely not. You know? <laughs> He's like, absolutely not. I'm not going to be a part of this at all. We couldn't even set up a business, really. We couldn't get the proper documentation to even do it. So Square had just came out. And so we were using Square to take credit card payments and just sending it to my personal bank account. You know, you talk about commingling of funds, but at the time, you know, it was just, we were just doing what we could to, to get it done. And so it taught me a lot about what is there. So at the end of the day, the actual business wasn't worth anything. You know, it was just the inventory that we had. And so we just sold the inventory. We had a cool name. We had stuff, but nobody cared because we were only seven, eight months old. And that really opened my eyes to what, when you're acquiring a business, what to look for, and also what an acquirer wants to see in your business. And I learned that because it was so hard. I mean, I called every tuxedo shop all the way over. I mean, talked to hundreds of them. And all of them were coming up against the same people. And then, you know, by the you know, as I got to Indiana, I started figuring out my pitch a little better and said, hey, we're not selling the business, we're selling our inventory. <laughs> Do you want a great price on inventory? And that's what made the sell. 
That's such an important point. And I think just in general, right, in life, you know, kind of defining that outcome and understanding what you want, right? You know, so are you building this business as a means for, you know, for you to create income for yourself or, or are you really planning for that exit event? And, you know, I mean, the story you guys went through, all the effort, you know, all the trials and tribulations. And then ultimately, like you said, really the business was only valued at the the inventory, right? You know, it wasn't, you know, a functioning business. And I think that's just such an important point for people to realize if they are looking at businesses and these different exit events and, you know, the glamorization of, you know, not being an entrepreneur and, and exiting these, these opportunities, you really have to understand what the value is to the person that's buying it, right? If you are the brand, if you're not coming along with the business and going to continue to work within it, right, then, then there may not be as much inherent value there as actually just the inventory or, or the, you know, your materials and, and things of that sort. So I think that's just such a powerful lesson. <laughs> and obviously, you know, you've got some really good stories. And like you said, you learned so much just along the way. So, so where did that kind of lead you? Where, where did you kind of go from there? Yeah. So I, I went from there, I went completely anti-entrepreneurship actually, like that had burned me out so bad, just the stress and the, you know, not knowing what you're doing. Like after that, I had decided, you know, I don't know if I want to be a business owner. So I went and served a, uh, in my church, you could do a two-year service mission abroad. And so I went to Japan and learned how to speak Japanese. And I did that for two years. I was in country for, for almost, actually, I think maybe even a little over two years, but that was a great experience to go out and learn about other cultures and to, to understand and, and learn a skill, learn a new language and, and have an opportunity to see how other people lived as well as it was a very service oriented time. And so I was able to, at, you know, 18 or 19 years old, being able to get out of yourself, you know, and, and not be so focused on you, you, you college, college. I mean, up to that point in my life, everything was about focusing on me. You know, what college do I want to go to? What sport do I want to play? What, you know, business am I in? Whatever it was. And so going and kind of having that, the, to, you're just one of the, you're just one of the other guys there, you know, nobody's any more special than another person. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. It doesn't, you know, you're just, everybody's there just trying to help, you know, and do service. And so that was really good. So I did that for two years. I came back and actually my head injury got significantly better over that time, but it took about three years for me to, I think, fully recover from it. And I think learning Japanese also helped me significantly because there's a heavy language focus there for me. And so I wanted to become as fluent as I could. And so I was memorizing two to 300 words a day. And because of that, that just, I think it just rewired my brain. I think that I exercised my brain so much in learning Japanese because it's so difficult that I came back. And when I got back, I was like, wait, wait a minute, maybe I can do college. Maybe I can do school. And so I went to and applied to the University of Utah uh, I got in and I, I went into school and thought, you know, I want to get a hard skill. You know, I, I, I don't want to get a humanities degree. I want to get something hard because I realized that from the experience of running the business that hard skills, you pay for hard skills. So as a business owner, I'm going to pay somebody for a hard skill. And so at that time, I didn't really think I wanted to be a business owner or an entrepreneur even, but I, I, I got really lucky in that when right when I came home, from Japan, I met a guy who worked at a tech company and we hit it off and he had lived in... So he married a Japanese girl. And so she was from the city that I was living in. 
And I met her mom and her mom had a bunch of junk that she needed hauled out of her house. And so I went in and just, you know, with some people you just hit it off and I hit it off with her mom, you know, this 70 year, they called them an Obachan, you know, these 70 year old grandma. And we just talked and it just so happened to study some of the older Japanese humor at that point. And so we were doing jokes and, and we just hit off. And anyway, she had called and said, Hey, this guy who came to my house, this American, he lives near you guys, I think, from what he was explaining to me. So they looked up my family and they lived like two blocks away. And so when I came home, they reached out and and he gave me a job as like, I didn't know anything about computers or tech or whatever, but he gave me a job as a manual quality assurance tester. And so that's what I did while I was going to college. And like everything, I, I wanted to do a hard skill, but then I kind of had this path in, in QA that I was taking and and kind of I couldn't do a lot of the hard, like whether it was, I tried some computer science, I tried some finance and accounting and I couldn't keep up with the course load. You know, I tried some engineering. I couldn't keep up with the course load and work full time. And so I made the decision that, Hey, I'm going to go to graduate school and I'm just going to pick a degree that gets me through my undergrad. And so I picked Japanese because I tested out of half of it. I never went to college and I literally, like I paid people to take notes for me. And then they would just send them to me and I would never have to go to class. I mean, I think I went to class probably four times a semester for most of the classes. And then I'd show up and take the quiz. And the quiz was like stuff I was learning in Japan when I was like six months in, you know, like this is the easiest stuff in the world, basic conversation. So I would just make fun of the professor, you know, being like, Hey, what are you teaching these people? They're not going to be able to speak Japanese at the end of this. Like, what are you? So we had this great relationship. All the professors pretty much let me just come take the tests and and go. And so I was working in quality assurance and this was a really exciting time in tech because this was the transition from desktop software to cloud, to SaaS. And so I got in at a tech company that was a desktop-based application that they were transitioning into SaaS and there's so much opportunity there. And so I hated my job because it was literally going in and saying, you'd read a test case and it was, you know, click login button, does it work? And so you click the login button, then you record, yes, it works. And it was that granular. It was just horrible. Put in the wrong password, click login. Does it let you in? And it's just like, there's 40 different ways to log into the site to make sure it all works and, and, you know, recording those down. And and it was just, it was, it was not what I wanted to do. And so I started looking up different salaries and I saw that an automation engineer, which was a new thing that was kind of coming about that you could automate these test cases by writing code. And I thought that sounds pretty great because that way I don't have to do it. And I looked at the salaries and I think the average was like about 80,000 a year for an automation engineer. And I was like, this sounds way better. I was making like $14 an hour. So I was was like, yeah, this is it. This is where I want to go. And so I taught myself how to code. And the company that I was working with was very gracious and letting me learn how to code on their time. And so as long as I finished my work, I could code and practice and get these automation, this automation up to prove the efficiency of testing. And then that led into now, it wasn't called DevOps at the time, but it's now called DevOps where you're automating the deployments of software to servers. And this was like AWS made this so easy, but at the time it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was really an orchestration across multifaceted. I mean, like you had the IT department involved, you had the developers involved, you had DevOps, QA, I mean, all of these things, and they were all having to communicate in a way that really AWS took that away. I mean, it's just, it's very straightforward now. They streamline that process. 
but it, it gave me a great skill set of being able to automate this. And then that eventually graduated into doing more, you know, like junior to middle level developer type stuff where I was, you know, coding APIs, doing interfaces into different applications, uh, a little bit of database work. So it taught me how to, to program. And, and what I realized is this is where I started. This is where I had the idea for my, really my third company was nobody knew how to do this stuff. And it was, it was the wild west. And people didn't know how to do automation. And I looked at how much these automation engineers were making. And I was like, you know what? They shouldn't be making this much. They're only making this much because there's n- nobody who knows how to do it. And so I built a software as a service platform that what we did is I orchestrated the deployment of automated tests using technologies that I build, as well as utilizing third-party technologies to where a QA manager could press a button and all these automated tests would run. And then they would report back in this amazing report that the QA manager could just read and then get an auto email to the team members who were over those. So just like it took away all this friction. And so I spent three years building this platform out. And I launched that company and within uh, 18 days, it grew from zero to 100,000 revenue wow. after working on all that. And, and that taught me a lot of really interesting things because I, I grew too fast. And eventually, three months later, the company was done. I couldn't grow fast enough. I was the only person working there. I couldn't service all the clients. I couldn't keep up with the technology. I couldn't raise fast enough. I, you know, I had money, but I couldn't deploy it in the right way. That taught me so much about the dangers of growing too quickly. So I went from zero to a hundred thousand in eighteen days. I think month two was about fifteen or twenty thousand, and then month three was done. And so, you know, had churn, all this different stuff. So it was a it was a great exposure to tech and technology and building these platforms and SaaS economics. But that company ultimately was just you know went under. It was done. So let's fast forward a little bit. So, I mean, you've obviously got so many skills kind of across the board, right? I mean, you're, you're fluent in Japanese. Now you're, you know, an automation engineer doing all this crazy stuff within technology. And so, so how did that kind of bring you into creating brick and, and kind of where you are today? Yeah. So what happened was I kind of just, I've always had this thing in my mind where I just see how things work and I just don't think they should work that way. And so really what kind of brought it there was I saw in the market. So there's kind of two things that came together here. The first thing was that I was looking down the barrel of like $50,000 in student loan debt. And at the time I wasn't making enough money for that to be comfortable. I had looked and I was like, why did I do this? You know, why did I go to school and get a degree in Japanese? Why did I do this? And I remember being very stressed about like doing the math and realizing that that I wouldn't even be able to pay these off in 10 years and that I, I couldn't afford to go on a vacation because I had student loan debt. And so I started looking at like, okay, I need to do something. It's going to be like a one-shot bullet to get this stuff out of here. And that's when I came across real estate. And um, so I said, okay, I don't know a dang thing about real estate, but I do know the list price is probably somewhere near what it's worth. And so if I can just go in and go hard to the paint and negotiate them down, I can get equity in the house and then I'll be able to flip it and sell it. So I did that. I found a house, you know, I was just looking on Zillow. I had no idea. There's all these other places to find homes. Didn't even talk to a realtor. I was just looking on Zillow, called up the listing agent. I was like, Hey, I want to put in an offer on this house. And they're like, well, do you have a realtor? I was like, no. 
And I told him what the offer was. And she's like, go get a realtor. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went and found a realtor and I was like, Hey, I want you to put in this offer. It was listed for 210. I offered 165. And the realtor was like, no, I'm not going to put in that offer. And I was like, okay, well, I'll find somebody who does. I called a bunch of different realtors. It's like, Hey, I need you to put in this offer for 165. They're going to take it and put it in and they accepted it. And so uh, the appraisal came back. I bought it on an FHA loan. The appraisal came back and it appraised for 200. And so I instantly had $40,000 of equity in that property at 35,000. And the property was totally run down. I mean, it was bad. Like, I don't know how, looking back on it after doing this a lot, I don't know how it passed an FHA inspection because it was, it was rancid. I mean, the lady had died. She had like six cats. Like, I'll tell you this. I went there at four o'clock in the morning one day and I, I roll up in my truck and I get out and the whole ground is moving all on the front porch, all on the side yard. It's moving. And I'm just like, what is this? And it's, it's dark. It's four in the morning. And then I shine my light and there's like a thousand ducks on the front porch and all around everywhere, just on the front. I was like, what is going on? So anyway, I scare them away. And then it's like a minefield of shit. You know, it's like, it was so <laughs> awful. And I was like, are you kidding me? So there's all these ducks that are just hanging out in the yard all the time. And so anyway, the house had a, uh, it was built in 1915. So it was an old house. It had never been updated since the sixties or seventies. And so I went in, you know, with zero construction experience. I was like, I'm going to flip this thing. I didn't even know about an FHA, like 203 loan. So I went and got a bunch of 0% interest credit cards and put all the renovations on 0% interest credit cards and just went in there. I'd go there at four in the morning and then I'd go to work at eight and I'd come back and work until nine after work. So I'd get off work at four or five then work till nine, just trying to get this house flipped so I could pay off my student loans. Anyway, long story short, I ran out of money. I had to move in before it was demoed, you know, before it was all finished. I had just demoed it. And so we didn't have a kitchen, bathroom, bedrooms or anything. I had ripped everything out, but I didn't know how to put anything back in. And so my wife and I moved into a completely demoed house. It was gutted. And we lived on the floor without a kitchen, a sink for um, nine months. And we did all the work ourselves um, and put it all back together over nine months. And by the time I ended up, I ended up actually, we lived there and I ended up, you know, this is one of the things that Rick, I went to sell the property. And after about two years of having it, it, set, it was on the market for seven months because, and it was, I had offers, full price offers above asking offers. People just would just not be qualified. So we'd go 30 days on one offer and then, oh, they failed to close. Okay. Collect their earnest money onto the next, you know, and we just did that. Uh, I think it was six times in a seven month period before the person actually closed. But in the end, it all worked out because I sold that home and I made $105,000 off of initial $6,000 investment, which I borrowed from student loans to pay the down payment because I didn't have the money. So that is really what opened my eyes to real estate and really the amazing wealth generation of real estate. Because at the time, I mean, I think I was probably only making like, I mean, I was making like $30,000 when I bought the house. But then when I sold the house, I was making about eighty. dollars and so I had looked at this and I was like, wait a minute, in this like 18 month period, I made $105,000. And because it was my primary residence, it wasn't taxed. And so I was looking at that and was just thinking, I'm doing something like really wrong because I can't, how do I do this? Like, how do I make $105,000? I was getting like $200 bonuses, like once a year. 
So that's what really kind of set me off to real estate is I, I truly believe real estate's the best wealth generation vehicle out there. And so that's really what kind of guided me into real estate and then jumped forward a little bit. And the experiences I had in real estate while doing that, you know, I went to go flip more homes and do more things and understanding and getting and hitting some of these problems within real estate. I started to see that it wasn't digitized. There was no online options. It was all relationship-based. The barrier to entry was really high. And so through a long series of events and many other companies, that's actually where Brick ideated from was, was that I didn't have the options when I was selling my home. And the, and the stress on my wife, like, you know, where she's like, we were stuck. We didn't have freedom. You know, we we wanted to move. This house was 1915, like. You know, it wasn't in a neighbor. It was in an old neighborhood. We were the youngest people there by at least 50 years, you know, like everybody was 78. I mean, people are dying of heart attacks every week, you know, because they're, you know, natural cause of deaths. And here we are 23 years old or 22 years old. And so, so that's where I really ideated brick. A lot of it was, was my experiences with, with selling my, my first home. Well, your wife sounds like a pretty amazing woman. If she can help you put reconstruct yeah. that house back together for nine months, that's just that's impressive. But to your point, obviously, you know, when you put in the effort in the real estate side and buy a right, it, it, you know, in in particular markets, you know, there's a lot of upside, and and I've experienced that firsthand as well. But I think the point that a lot of people gloss over sometimes is you've got to do the work, right? I mean, you know, this yeah. th- this was a very difficult purchase that you made. There were a lot of hoops you had to jump through, and I mean, you're talking about. A good amount of money, $105,000, but I mean, this is over a two, two and a half year time horizon, right? And so it's not just this instant scenario. And I think what people need to focus on now with real estate is you need to make sure that you're still trying to buy right, you know, with the right fundamentals, you know, and kind of even just my experience talking to neighbors this week and how inflated the market is, you know, and I'm in North Carolina, so it's it's fairly fertile, but- it's a hot market. But, you know, it's just like, what's the reality? You know, if the other shoe does drop, you know, and these people are paying, you know, kind of- one and a half or two times what we think intrinsic value of these properties are, you know, and things do shift. And so, but I I just, I love the fact that you kind of went after, you know, these creative strategies, right? And I think that's where when you're in a market as strong as we are right now with real estate, I think that's one of the things that you're bringing to the table. And I think is unique is you guys are, are finding these properties and finding unique ways to help buyers and sellers come together for properties that aren't kind of the run of the mill, just total marketed MLS type opportunities. Absolutely. And and a lot of people don't realize a lot of the options that they have in real estate when they own properties, right? You know, if you're married and you sell a property and you have more than 500,000 equity, that equity above that is taxed as, as income, right? And so that can be a really difficult thing when you're talking about a million dollar home that you bought 25 years ago and it's worth a million now, you bought it for 250. You're going to take 500 grand in income plus your ordinary income. I mean, you're going to lose so much of that. And one of the things we could do, one of the things we do at Brick that no other iBuyer does is we'll come in and and we'll say, okay, well, we'll pay you out your equity and then you sell or finance the home to us and we pay you a monthly payment. And so that, I mean, so not only are they getting cash flow, we structure the deals too. If we miss a payment, title goes back to them. So they don't have to go through a foreclosure process. If we miss a payment, we lose the house. That's the deal. So there's just a lot of really interesting things that you can do within real estate. It's very diverse and it's very it can be very complex as well. But the thing that everybody has to realize is that the system is set up in a way for you to do a certain thing and to do it only one way. And that's really what you have to look at when you're looking at whether it's an investment property or whether it's 
buying your primary residence is that a realtor is trained that they're licensed, right? So they go through training and they're trained to interact with something a certain way. And so when you go to a realtor, you're only going to get certain options. Most realtors that we work with don't know what seller finance is. All they know about it is that it's incredibly risky. That's all they say is it's so risky. You don't want to do it. And so when I, when you actually drill that, well, why is it risky? Like literally we set up an escrow specialist. And if we miss a payment, you get the home. It's that simple. Like it really is that simple. What, where is the risk in that? And you're getting the cash flow, and you don't have to be a landlord. So there's a lot of different strategies there. And when I look at a lot of these people who want to get in, started in real estate and they're like, well, I want to flip. I'm like, don't flip a house. Like that's the dumbest thing you can do. There's so many other ways to, to make money because flipping a house is a full-time job. It's, and a lot can go wrong. I mean, one of the things in my first flip that happened is we had asbestos. And so when you have asbestos, it's like, well, I can't take care of that myself. Well, I have to hire somebody to do it now. It's five grand. And so when your renovation budget was three and now you're paying five, it's, it's hard. And so there's a lot of other things that you can do in real estate that actually support a nine to five. So one of the things about real estate that people don't understand is that nine to five income is way better than having self-employed income. And so when you look at real estate in the lens of literally if the system is actually set up for nine to fivers for W2 employees, and can you leverage and take advantage of that system to meet your goals? The answer nine out of 10 times is absolutely if you know what you're doing. And if you're willing to put in some sacrifice for five years, maybe living in different houses, moving with your family, you can generate four to $5,000 a month in passive income. And for most people, that's a game changer. And that allows them a, a platform to go onto something else. So when I see a lot of these gurus and these people, LinkedIn, social Instagram, where they're like, hey, flip your first house. Hey, you know, go out and find a go wholesale or whatever. I'm like, there's so many tools that are right in front of you that if you would stop just listening to all the noise, everybody who puts out content has a motive, right? And when you're talking to a guru, they want you to buy their course. So they're going to teach you something that's more complicated that you need them for to learn so that you can pay them and they can continue to feed, you know, the it's their business, right? They have to feed the feed the business. And and so hiring a coach is different than buying a course, I think. Hiring a coach is highly effective in my experience, but buying a course, a lot of it, you just some courses are great, but you just have to look at like the real estate courses in a very critical light of what it actually does and what the success rates are. You know, if I were to start over, I would move into a home that was uh, had an unfinished basement. I would live there for two years. I would finish the basement. I would rent out the basement and then eliminate my mortgage through renting out the basement. I would then buy a duplex or a fourplex. I would move into one unit on there, renovate the other three over another two years, have that duplex with an FHA loan against it, have another FHA loan on my main residence and have eight units total. And those eight units, all let's say pay $1,000 a month. That's $8,000 a month gross. I mean, you're starting to say within five years, you can get from not only your nine to five W2 income, but you can also get to 8,000 a month gross passive. And you're probably only gonna take home four of that, but after all your expenses, but 4,000 a month passive. So if you're thinking you're making you know, $80,000 a year, that's about 6,000 dollars a month, you add another 4,000 to it. Now, all of a sudden you're at 10,000 and you have a very different, you know, you can do a lot more. You have a lot more freedom 
And so in real estate investing, I think so many people just want to quit their nine to five instead of looking at their nine to five as a tool, a means to an end um, to actually achieve their goals. Totally. And I mean, I just think the creativity that you use along with the fact that you're really defining what the outcome is, you know, and that, that's what I'd recommend to the majority of folks out there. Just make sure the tools that you're using are a right fit for you. As you said, uh, you know, I know firsthand as well, flipping is a full-time job. And, and again, that's back to active income, right? And the ultimate goal for the majority of us is trying to get to that place where we can detach our labor or our hours working from that income that we're making. And, you know, the structure and strategy that you talked about right there is tremendous for a lot of people uh, in the opportunities and leveraging the tools that they have at their disposal instead of just constantly searching for that that next silver bullet. So, well, uh, Chris, this has been a lot of fun. Let's wrap up with the contrarian three sure. pack here. So I know you've done a lot of stuff, spanned a lot of different areas, but is there one investment in particular that re- that stands out in your mind as maybe being a little bit more contrarian than others? It may sound contrarian, but the one investment that was the hardest investment for me to make has been investments into personal growth. And so one of the biggest, I think the highest ROI investment that I've done or the most contrarian is I hired a personal trainer and that has paid massive dividends. And they've had it's had a direct result on my business because I went from having to get, I had to get eight hours of sleep to where now I can go off of five or six, you know, feeling better, having a sharper mind, being able to solve problems more quickly, stress reduction has all actually allowed me to grow my business more. And so I think making sure that, you know, your health and your wellness as a business owner, as an entrepreneur is invested in at the same rate that you're reinvesting in your business is actually the key to growing successfully. That's so true. And I mean, obviously we can't, provide an optimal ability if we're not, you know, if we're not there physically. And so I think that's just such a, such a great point, investing in your health. So I know we talked a lot about business, your different entrepreneurial ventures, but outside of business, you know, what's, what's some, something you do for fun out there with friends and family? Yeah. So friends and family. So I think one of the things that people, another to kind of circle it back to entrepreneurship is one of the things that's hard about entrepreneurship is that your lifestyle changes a little bit and it, it sometimes makes it hard to have friends you know, a lot of it is, I mean, it's highly demanding, but also I'm 27 years old. And most of the people that are around me or that would be, you know, my age of friends or whatnot are doing different things than what I'm doing. You know, they're kind of getting into the full swing of their career where I'm hiring them. And so it creates this kind of weird dynamic that people don't think about a lot where it's sometimes hard to actually find friends and do things with friends because you're just at different stages in your life. They're worried about making $60,000 a year I just like lost 60 grand, right? You know, it's just a different, it's just different. And so it's it's actually been a challenge that I've had. My wife and I, we love going hiking with our dogs. So that's what we do for fun. I actually, my wife is a gamer. I didn't know this till we'd been married for, I don't know, probably six months. And she's very, very good at first person shooters. So we, and you would never guess this. Like if you meet my wife, she's very shy, very quiet, you know, and would not seem like she just thrives off of Gears of War and Resident <laughs> Evil, but she does. And so we play, uh, we'll pick a video game or whatever, and me and her will play it together uh, on the weekends and stuff. So that's that's the fun thing that, that my wife and I do. Yeah, that's super cool. That's super cool. Uh, I haven't got my wife oh, into video games yet. I've, I've kind of been out of it myself <laughs> for a little while, but... She, you know. she got me into video games, you know? I had never played video games growing up or... You know, even till I was probably 21 and she, she, she full baptized me. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> so yeah, headshot God. probably. <laughs> yeah, she's she's really good too, and it's really frustrating sometimes because I'm a highly highly competitive person, and the fact that I just can't do it quite as good as she can, I'm not as fast. That's really what it comes down to. Man, I just. I've never beat her, you know, Call of Duty, <laughs> Halo, whatever. It doesn't matter. She, she takes me, she takes, and she, we bet on it too. It's, it's a, it's a really fun thing. You know, it's a fun thing to do that we really enjoy doing. So totally, totally. It sounds like it. Um, all right, we'll wrap up with, uh, what, what does offer you the most fulfillment in life? You know, I think that for a lot of people, they think that, and I thought this for a really long time as well is that, that when you add a certain amount of money, you're going to be happy and you're going to feel fulfilled. And I'm here to tell you that's the biggest lie that's ever been, you know, per- perpetuated as a as a society is that somehow reaching a certain level of income is going to some somehow make you feel better about yourself. Um, you know, I remember when I was about 24, I had a goal to personally make fifty thousand dollars a month, and so I went out and I achieved that goal, and that's when like almost my whole life fell apart. You know, and so I think it's really important to look at it and say, okay, here's what, what actually does make you happy. And for a long time, I thought it was, his money was going to make me happy and be the silver bullet. But really what actually makes me happy is two things is one, solving problems and two, helping people and spending that time and building those relationships. You know, I think that my daughter just turned one. And when you start to realize the importance of developing these relationships and the effects, you know, entrepreneurship and even work isn't a silo. It always bleeds over into your family. And so making sure that you are developing the proper set of skills to make sure that your problems aren't becoming their problems. And I think that the thing that has made me the most happy is focusing and prioritizing the relationship with my wife and my daughter over everything else. And then, you know, on top of that, being able to go out every day and solve really hard problems and and help people has been something that I am deeply uh, satisfied by. You know, it, it, a lot of people talk about, oh, you need a vacation. And this is so controversial. And I don't know why, but I don't need a vacation. I like what I'm doing. Like, you know, I need to rest and I need to recharge like everybody else, but I'm not grinding for seven months and then recharging on a three week vacation. I, I recharge every day. You know, I, I, I carve out the time to recharge every day. So I don't need to take a week longer, a month long vacation, which you see a lot of business owners, like they'll just, bounce for two weeks, be back for a week and then bounce for another two weeks. And, and I don't need to do that. And as well as I'm younger, right? I'm at a different stage in my life than a lot of people. But I think that making sure that you, you create those kind of micro vacations in your life so that when you're actually on vacation, you can really enjoy it and go and, and do fun stuff. Like who wants to go sit on the beach all day? I mean, I guess some people do, but it's like, I want to go and explore other cultures and see things. And if I'm so burned out by the time I get there, it's like, and all I do want to do is sit on the beach. It's, it's kind of, you know, contradictory, if you will. So yeah, that's a, that's a really long answer to a very simple, short question. So. No, I love it. Relationships and prioritization of of what's truly important to you. And I'm the same way. As far as vacations go, you know, my wife and I, my, my kids, we're, we're the same way. We like to be active, right? It's fun to hang out a little bit and, you know, spend some time at the beach, but I can't do, uh, eight to, to five sitting on the beach, you know, we got to go out there and yeah. do some zip lining, cruising around, some kayaking, some other activities. So, all right, man, 100%. well, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. So what's the best way the audience can get a hold of you out there uh, and kind of learn a little bit more sure. about brick uh, LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn is the best. Um, if you send me a DM, I will respond to it. 
just LinkedIn DMs are, are so hard to keep up with. Sometimes they get buried. So um, I do go through uh, once a week though and go all the way to the back and filter by unread, you know? Um, so, so LinkedIn is the best way to get a hold of me. And also just uh, interacting on LinkedIn is probably the best way to get to know me as well. Cool. Well, sounds good, man. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Very empowering story. So looking forward to, to seeing where you take things next with Brick and, and what the next opportunities in front of you are. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, man. Have a good one. Until next time, live fulfilled. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.